Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about a fun book published by Roman and Littlefield in 2022, though also recently out on paperback, titled Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American, which pretty much does exactly what it says. And you can see now why I'm so excited, because I would like to know where we get traditional Italian-American cuisine from, how, why this was developed over the late 19th and 20th centuries. So I'm very pleased to welcome the author of the book to the podcast, Ian McAllen. Thank you so much for being here. No, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to talk about Red Sauce with you. I'm very glad to have you. Could you start us off with a bit of an introduction of yourself and explain why you decided to write this book? Sure. You know, so um, I am half Italian American. Uh, my mother's side uh, came uh, to the United States in the early 20th century. Um, and I grew up in northern New Jersey, which is a state with a huge um, population of Italian Americans. So this is some something that has been culturally part of my life, my entire existence. Um, and then my wife, uh, same type of thing. Uh, her family is half Italian American. Um, their side actually came a few years before mine. Um, and yet, uh, they all grew up in the same kind of 20 miles, um, outside of New York city. And so, um, my wife and I were sitting down to dinner at, uh, an Italian American restaurant in, uh, New York city's West village. It was a restaurant she had been going to since she was a baby. Um, And they served a classic Italian-American red sauce uh, menu. Uh, Things like lasagna and chicken parm and all of your favorite um, pastas with meatballs. And at the time, we were were thinking about um, our own trips to Italy. And, uh, you know, having a bit of of red wine um, sold by the craft in in this restaurant. So the two of us had quite a bit to drink. And um, we got to thinking... Why 
is uh, this food that we're eating here that has been so much a part of both of our um, entire lives, so different than the food we had in Italy or, or would be having in Italy on our next trip. And, and why is that different? And, and how did that happen? So, you know, as these things go, I, I went home and I started doing some Googling and I, I didn't have the answers I really wanted. And so I ended up at the New York Public Library um, re- researching things that were a little bit more academic, a little bit more um, journalistic, you know, looking back at old newspapers. And I found myself taking notes. And then at a certain point, that research, you realize, is is more than just a curiosity. It's more than just a dinner discussion. And all of a sudden, I was outlining a book that I wanted to write. And that's that's how we got to the first draft of Red Sauce. I must admit, I'm not surprised that this started in a restaurant, um, given kind of the story that the book tells. Um, and what a great way to start off. So thank you for that introduction. If we kind of go all the way back then to the beginning, in a lot of ways, of the story, um, red, the red of red sauce, perhaps obviously, comes from tomato sauce. Um, but that's not an inevitable sort of, that's kind of what Italian food is. You know, there's a whole bunch of Italian food that doesn't have much to do with tomato sauce at all. So that seems like a reasonable place to start. Can you help us understand when and why tomato sauce did become popular in Naples and Italy? And why was it this bit of Italian food that made its way over to the US? Sure. And so, you know, contextually, you know, obviously, original tomatoes, along with a lot of other vegetables that are part of Italian cuisine, began as a New World crop. Um, The Spanish exchange, then the Colombian exchange. Um, But how did they get why, why Naples? Why Sicily? Uh, these are territories that were at the time um, under Spanish rule over over the centuries, leading up to the the Great Migration, right? And um, so, what was going on is a, a the peasant class, the the poor people, um, had started eating tomatoes in the southern areas of Italy. Um, I saw in numerous occasions in research um, comparisons to uh, the Irish potato famine where um, uh, other crops had failed and tomatoes sort of became uh, a a default food in a lot of cases. And in places like uh, Sicily and Naples, they could grow them often. Uh, So, you know, today we think of tomatoes as something that you can get all year long in the grocery store, um, in the supermarket, um, sometimes they're grown around the world. Sometimes they're grown in the greenhouse. At the time, you needed that hot, dry climate in southern Italy uh, to really grow them. But it was such a good climate for tomatoes. They could grow two or three full crops a year. Um, and then they also were able to dry them um, often on the rooftops of their buildings. So this became a staple food, um, particularly through several famines um, that had afflicted the area. And so... At the beginning of uh, the great migration of, of Italians, the, the diaspora, uh, which I will also add does not just go to the United States. It starts earlier into um, Southern America and Central America. It goes around uh, other parts of Europe as well. Um, but around 1880 onward, uh, Southern Italians are leaving uh, what is now a, a newly united country, um, which is also its own kind of um reason for tomatoes being a big part of this is uh, 
the, the economic divide between North and South in Italy was very big. Mainly, it was Southern Italians coming into the United States. They were bringing mainly the, the cuisines they were familiar with, which was tomatoes um, and other vegetables, eggplants, peppers, uh, things like artichokes. These are all things that had gotten integrated into um, Southern Italian cuisine uh, and was coming with that group of immigrants. Now, in the north of Italy, a very different type of um, food. You had more um, animal fat. You had more rice. You had more uh, you know, cream and butter. And you know th- those foods don't really come um, until later, uh, or are not part of the Italian American experience until later. Um, in part, or in large part, because the vast majority of these people are coming from places like Sicily, Naples, anywhere south of Rome, in a in a region called the Mezzogiorno um, of Italy, which is you know the southern Italy, and and so that cuisine is what arrives in the United States and what is really the basis for. Um, creating these dishes, um, a primarily vegetarian, uh, cuisine when they leave Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, and that's how tomatoes become that basis. So it's actually that last sentence I'd love to pick up on because now that we understand the tomato side of this, let's talk about what's in the sauce, because as you hinted at, when it leaves Italy, it's vegetables, but of course, if we think about a lot of these iconic dishes, we're talking meatballs, we're talking veal, we're talking a lot of like cream, butter, not exactly like low calorie vegetable based dishes. So how did that transition happen? Well, so uh, like I said, mostly what the Italian peasant class, the southern peasant class is eating in Italy at the end of the 19th century are almost exclusively vegetables. When they have access to meat, it typically is one or two times a year on big high holidays like Easter, Christmas. Um, and even then, even within that, many of these these um, farmers would have only things like sausage, which is not a whole cut of meat. It can be filled with other things like fat and um, the cheaper cuts of meat. And so they come to the United States where, where food is inexpensive and, and inexpensive not just in a global way, right? Um, and, and I think it's worth noting that the United States, up until that period of time, had an enormous amount of, of, of resource wealth, right? Um, re- compared to the rest of the world, there are few people and lots of lots of resources being produced. Um, in in Italy, not only were there t- many more people than resources available, but the tax system was one that wasn't beneficial for the individual. They got taxed even on the food that they grew in their gardens. Um, the cost of living was very high. They had no, uh, the people who were coming had no access to land. They were, excuse me, a, a landless um, peasant group, right? Um, and, and there wasn't enough land for them to buy. Whereas they come to the United States, uh, they come into a city, they can grow food in their gardens. Um, they don't have to pay tax on the, the vegetable plot and the, in the windowsill of their tenement, right? Um, and so all of a sudden they have more money to buy food as well because the wages are better. Um, they're doing labor work that, um, you know, even though they Italian immigrants typically were paid less than many other European immigrants, it was still more than they were able to earn in Italy where there was a surplus of population. And so they turned that money or that, that greater amount of, of resource 
into cheaper foods, which meant they could suddenly buy meat. They could have access to higher quality, full cuts of meat. Um, a lot of cases in little Italy areas around the country, that, that is the neighborhoods where they settled, they often worked in um, meat packaging um, and that allowed them access to reduced uh, cost of meat cuts. So, you know, if you're working at the, the meat factory and, you know, there's a mistake in the way a, a piece of meat is cut, they would often sell it to the workers at a discount. So suddenly they had access to the meat, but they don't have this history of cooking it. They don't know what to do with it. Um, so a lot of these things evolved um, from essentially people who had never experienced uh, hotel cooking, restaurant cooking, uh, upper class cooking, how they imagined wealthy people would eat. And then also the conversion of vegetarian recipes. And I think uh, one of the most clear examples of this would be a veal parmesan, uh, which has a clear lineage to eggplant parmesan. Um, and you know, they're essentially taking a vegetable dish and converting it into a, a meat dish. Um, and, and then on top of that, there are a lot of reasons for Italian immigrants to have uh, celebratory meals. So um, like I said, they, uh, they would typically only have meat once or twice a year in Italy. Well, now they can have meat all the time. And then on top of that, there's lots of reasons where they're, they have these celebrations on a regular basis whether that's because a family member has arrived from Italy or they're suddenly able to make an investment that has paid off. And these are all things that are encouraging them to treat your typical Sunday afternoon like it's a big holiday, which then leads them to be more likely to cook that celebration meat um, meat dish several times a, a, a year rather than only once a year. Um mm. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is, yeah, that's essentially what we're looking at. We're looking at foods that were one time a holiday meal becoming a, a daily regular meal. Mm. And, and of course, that idea of more access to meat as well. So that, that makes sense that they all come together in this way. Um, thinking then about kind of how any food moves from being part of one community to being a broader thing. We know that obviously uh, the U.S.'s history with immigrants is quite contested really at any point in the time period. Uh, And obviously Italian-American food was part of that, kind of the immigrant, the other, the small enclave type thing. Of course, it doesn't stay that way, right? Everyone eats pasta now. So can you explain sort of how and why pasta became not just an, a food for this particular community and why it was that this seems to have happened sort of between World War One and World War Two. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the interesting facets of this is uh, the way uh, local governments in America treated Italian food. Um, at first, they were like places like New York City were working very hard to change the mindset of immigrant children by um, prohibiting foods in schools like pasta. Um, so the people, you know, children would go to school and they wouldn't be allowed to have their, their immigrant cuisine, their ethnic cuisine. And as you said, by the, um, by the end of World War II, that had shifted where the, the city and, and overall the, um, the government agencies were, were encouraging pasta. And the number one thing for that is macaroni, a dried pasta, and fresh pasta... Um, are both things that are very economical for 
um, people to eat. They provide a lot of calories for very little money. And part of that, of course, is the United States is a breadbasket. You know, the Great Plains produce a lot of wheat, and that wheat can be turned into um, fresh pasta very easily. And so it became a very affordable thing to do. And the, the big the big economic issue between the wars, obviously, is the Great Depression, which uh, influenced a lot of um, the shifts in the way people eat. And the 1930s is a period of time where you see a lot of um, Italian-influenced foods really becoming mainstream. And uh, so the second reason for that is um, Italian restaurants, because they were seen as foreign and ethnic um, before World War II, um, is they uh, they were very bountiful portions. So uh, people felt like they were getting a good deal. Um, one of the, the examples that I, I uh, look in the book is the idea of a, a prefix menu at Italian restaurants and how um, the food that comes with that typically is um, more, more courses, bigger portions. And so what ends up happening is the Italian American restaurants have the association that if you're trying to be frugal, it's a great way to go have a big plate of pasta. And there, you know, within that, there are a few, uh, a few things, the early sort of idea of fast food um, were what were known as spaghetti houses. These were like almost cafeteria style restaurants. And they opened up not just in big cities on the East coast, but across the country, really uh, introducing Americans to the idea of pasta. And what it was is things like spaghetti with uh, the choice of a dozen different sauces that you could to top the, the pasta with. And, you know, ranging from a basic uh, tomato sauce to tomato sauce with uh, mushrooms or um, uh, what I like is the, or <laughs> what I think is funny, it was a very popular dish was a spaghetti alla caruso at the time. And this is a tomato sauce made with uh, chicken livers, which has since fallen out of favor in part uh, because people rarely eat chicken livers in the same volume that they used to a hundred years ago. Uh, but uh, all of that really helped spread Italian American food uh, on, on at least an initial level as a cost conscious way of, of filling up your belly. Um, and so that's really like the impetus for that. And of course, after world war two, a lot of servicemen have spent time um, both in, in Europe eating Italian food. So in Italy and also some of the rations that they ate were um, mass-produced Chef Boyardee canned spaghetti and spaghetti uh, uh, the raviolis that they would make and the uh, the other canned pasta um, from uh, you know manufacturers like Chef Boyardee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that that those things all make sense coming together, um, and it's it, it's entertaining in a way almost to think of spaghetti houses like today's Chipotle or something like that. <laughs> no, absolutely, and like you could walk in and and very cheaply having in, in a huge bowl of pasta. Right. Yeah, which would be enticing. So um, if we think kind of the next step further is beyond the spaghetti house, um, beyond the canned stuff, there is, of course, also the spread of the iconic sort of Italian-American restaurant, you know, with the, the red checkered tablecloths and the carafes of red wine. You know, it's a very clear visual iconography as well as a particular menu. How and when did that concept expand beyond the initial enclave in New York? So what is really amazing about that whole, the whole visual that is created is even at the time, 
the restaurateurs that are opening up Italian restaurants are trying to capture a kind of uh, nostalgia that they that never really existed even in Italy, right? Um, and they're creating in the same way today. Chain restaurants uh, cover their walls with um, you know fake uh, you know sort of prop pieces to have that nostalgia. That's essentially what was happening. You know, um, the the red checker tablecloth gingham uh, print was very common. And actually, uh, you know, other restaurants or other ethnic restaurants at the time also had uh, those kinds of things. So uh, in New York in the early 20th century, uh, German restaurants were very popular. Uh, blue gingham or green gingham was very popular in those restaurants. Italians embracing the red, um, you know, it was just a way of differentiating them while also, you know, reflecting back uh, the, this idea that, oh, we're, we're just like these other places. Um, but it, that style was so popular, even non-Italian restaurants in some cases ended up replicating that look and feel just because they, they liked it. it uh, kind of like a Disney World-esque interpretation of... Um, you know, if you go to Epcot Center and you go to the uh, the, the World Showcase of, of Disney's interpretation of, of all the countries around the world, that's essentially what people were doing with Italian-American restaurant um, uh, look and feel. Um, mm. And so that today, you know, we, we think of in a modern iteration of that, um, the Olive Garden chain, which I believe is, is globally available, has that Tuscan look, right? And that's just simply a a new version of the the red checker tablecloth from a hundred years ago. It's someone's fantasy idea of what a themed restaurant should be. Um, and, you know, uh, certainly Italian American restaurants were serving Chianti bottle or Chianti wine. Um, and the, the idea of, of packaging it in those um, round bottles with the, the wicker around it was, someone's idea of what it should look like right and it was simply became the expectation that a patron had and that's how it evolved into sort of more of a a universal truth um yeah that 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 makes a lot of sense um i like the idea of the disney disneyfication of it (laughs) i think that captures it quite well i would i would also say like there's certainly in the post-war period you were starting to see um, Italian American restaurants that were doing uh, imitating uh, French restaurants with white table service, uh, white linen, um, and and that was really representative of as Italian American restaurants were becoming more upscale, where they're shifting from economy, um, low cost, high volume into sort of uh, a fancier um, experience. Uh, you do see that shift, and I think that is a really also an interesting uh, reflection of how customers on one level want that themed restaurant, but as you move to a more upscale clientele, the expectation is to, to at that time, to look more French. Mm-hmm. So let's, if we continue the trajectory, right? We've gone from Naples to a particular small immigrant community to being more aware of the food to now the restaurants expanding. But the last stage is kind of, at least in my mind, I think of it as going from there's this thing called Italian food or Italian American food. And maybe sometime, you know, on a Friday night, that's where we'll go out for dinner or on a Sunday afternoon, whatever, to thinking of something like spaghetti and meatballs as like, oh yeah, I guess it's Italian, but 
everyone has it all the time. It's kind of for everyone. It's not necessarily ethnic or a special occasion food. It's just sort of American in a way. How do we get to that stage? Well, so in the you know post-war period where where like the, by the 1950s 1960s right we're moving towards an era of convenience food in america right the 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 big push is for housewives to open up a, a can or open up a frozen food and be able to eat you know eat dinner without having spent all day preparing it and that really was a, a, an interesting space for Italian American food because uh, one of the, the big pushes there, it comes from Stouffer's, the manufacturers of frozen meals. They launch a, a frozen food line um, of these casserole type dishes, one of which was a lasagna, a, an interpretation of an Italian bolognese lasagna. Um, it, you know, the elements of, of both the Southern and Northern lasagna are, are in it. Uh, but it is one of the few um, dishes in the Stouffer's line that, that is successful that, uh, you know, people uh, were buying. And as a result, that, that meant frozen lasagna as a category in your grocery uh, took off from that moment on. Um, in the 60s, you start getting your jarred tomato sauces as well, uh, ragu, and uh, eventually um, a little bit later than that, prego. Um, and these become national uh, brands with you know a national holding company behind them. And the you know that that's another example of like buy a jar of, of sauce, and ten minutes later, fifteen minutes later, you've boiled pasta and you have a meal. And so. You know, from that perspective, Italian American food was really on the lower end, on the low price point end, um, became super easy for for all Americans to participate in. Um, now, a lot of uh, you know, this is also at the time when pizzerias were beginning to to grow, and I think it, it it's easy to overlook the impact of the pizzeria um, in also penetrating in, into the United States, uh, into that culture, bringing with it pasta dishes, bringing with it uh, chicken parm, veal parmesan, heroes. Um, and, and one of the things that happened in, in the 1950s was pizza went from being this niche food only available and a handful of enclaves in um, Italian neighborhoods in urban areas to very widespread. And, and a lot of that had to do with the development of a gas fired pizza oven by uh, created by this guy, Ira Nevin, who is a aerospace engineer, but he came from a family of, of uh, bricklayers. And so he had experience building ovens. He was an engineer. He served in the army, um, ate pizza in Italy, came back and, and created uh, the Baker's pride oven which really paved the way for anyone to open a corner pizzeria. And once you have that coming around, uh, then then people are, are, again, convenience food, pizza in the United States, you get a box uh, to, to go. Uh, pizza delivery comes out a few years later. Um, and that in the 1960s is really when you see a lot of these uh, pizzerias opening as far into the, into the Midwest and into California even. Um, and that's another avenue for which Italian American food is really like 
spreading really rapidly um, and then turning into large corporations. So like Pizza Hut, Domino's, uh, you know, a little bit later into the into the 1980s, you have things like uh, Olive Garden and Macaroni Grill, which are larger, um, larger chains that are more than just pizza. But that's really where where you're, you're coming from is is um, from that ground up. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's helpful to understand. Um, as we've gotten to kind of the peak of spread of red sauce, uh, we do have to talk a little bit about uh, it doesn't doesn't quite stay there. So uh, one angle into this is in the book, you talk about kind of the iconic restaurant Di Paolo's in New York and how if we look at it kind of over the generations in a lot of ways, it exemplifies the evolution of Italian-American food over especially the 20th century. So can you take us through kind of this restaurant and those stages? Yeah. So, you know, essentially what happened in urban areas like New York City, Boston, Baltimore, Philadelphia, smaller cities like Newark, New Jersey, um, and then as far west as Chicago, St. Louis, um, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, you have... um, the immigrant community settles in a spot and it creates a little, what is termed a little Italy neighborhood. And for the first generation, all the businesses there are catering to the Italian immigrants. Most of them are speaking. um, Well, at at first, a lot of them are speaking the dialect of the community that they originated from. Because keep in mind in, in 1880, most of the peasant class are not speaking Italian. They're speaking dialect. The the idea of national Italian doesn't really come around until Mussolini and the post-war period um, where uh, everyone's really taught a nationalized uh, Italian language. So so everyone's speaking their their local dialect, which is also where you get um, dialect um, words like you hear in uh, TV shows like The Sopranos, like Gabagool or um, Ricot, right? These are these are words that were uh, the the dialect of from southern Italy and not Italian, right? And so, at first generation of businesses, the Italians are living there. They're going to their businesses. The next generation begins to uh, leave those enclaves. They they're spreading out into the suburbs. They're becoming wealthier. Um, and for you know the first fifty years, you're getting a continuous flow of immigrants to replace them. So little Italy businesses are doing great. They're thriving. More people are coming. But as, as the immigrant group matures from being first generation to second generation and now into third generation, people are moving farther and farther away from these, these core neighborhoods. They're spending less time and money. They're, they're integrating. They're speaking English. You know, their children are speaking English. Their, their grandchildren are speaking English. They're becoming professional class um, members who who are not operating local shops anymore. They're not shopkeepers. They're lawyers and doctors, and they're moving to the suburbs. So now, what happens? You know, by the by the two thousands, by the nineteen nineties, nineteen eighties, the little Italy core is really serving groups of people who are either coming to visit grandparents, or um, you know, and so like an older generation that's dying, or by now, you know, the twenty twenties, you're talking about largely people who, who are two or three generations away from having lived in those neighborhoods, they're only coming as tourists. They're coming to eat, um, eat the food, buy some trinkets, go to a festival, but the experience is very, really limited. So now if you want to talk about a specific place like the Palos, which is a, um, an importer of Italian meats and cheeses. 
But originally, that was uh, as a family business from more than a century ago. I believe they started out um, simply doing cheese, um, making cheese, then eventually importing cheese. Then they expand to import Italian products generally. Um, and now they have, they're still in Little Italy, but Little Italy is shrinking. And they're still probably the best place to go in the neighborhood for imported uh, meats and cheeses and imported foods. They have now a restaurant um, attached to them. So they originally it was just a store. Um, but back in 2019, they opened up a, a little wine bar with with food and, and, uh, and drink. And so what they're really doing is they're following this evolution, right? So at first, they're serving the immigrant community that is there. They're providing people who don't leave that neighborhood with the, the meats and cheeses that they need. Then they're, they're evolving to become a specialty store. You know, in the middle of the 20th century, even as late as the, the late 1980s, you couldn't get specialty cheeses from Italy in your regular supermarket in the United States. Um, that's really something that has evolved and we've come to, to believe that you can walk into any upscale grocery store in America and get Parmesan, you can get mozzarella, you can get, you know, even beyond those, uh, the, the four or five um, basic Italian cheese, you get into real specialty stuff. Very hard to do uh, up until even a few years ago outside of, you know, core urban areas. So they're providing that service. And now they're moving again, you know, shifting, shifting businesses again to serve food in a, in a more like come, come for the afternoon and eat and we'll serve you type, type of way. And I, and I think that's a natural evolution that's happening um, in all of the little Italy's um, certainly places like Boston has a, you know, a beautiful little Italy. It's a tiny couple blocks and they, they still have, um, things like Bova's Bakery, which is a 24-hour Italian bakery, and a bunch of other little shops and restaurants. But the, the main economic driver for them are, are people coming as visitors, either day trip uh, tourists or, or longer, like, you know, visiting the city of Boston and they make a stop in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that is the evolution that's really happening um, in these ethnic enclaves around the country. And so many pieces are causing that as you detailed for us in terms of changing uh, economics, generational change. One of them also that you talk about in the book is differences in where Italian immigrants are coming from. They're no longer coming from Naples with this tomato-based culture. You talk about in the, the second half of the 20th century, you get different Italian immigrants. So can we add that into the picture of how this impacts red sauce culture? So, um, in essence, uh, immigration f- f- uh, begins to slow leading up to World War II. Um, this is a result of changes in the United States and also Italian fascism was trying to uh, restrict the outflow of, of um, you know, human labor as capital, essentially. So that you know, if, if men and laborers are leaving Italy, that's bad for the fascist state. Um, but then, you know, World War II happens and uh, Europe is, is torn asunder. But more importantly, the South has had, you know, 50, 75 years of, of population leaving. Um, and then on top of that, now the northern industrial areas, the, the places in Italy that were the economic engine of the country, have also been flattened by, um, by World War II. So all those people now are looking for, for jobs. And so 
what ends up happening is it flips. You have a, many fewer people coming from southern Italy, where, where because it was um, more agrarian in nature, it was less likely to be damaged in the war. And then also you needed all of that agriculture as the economy restarted post-war. But the north, where there were you know, jobs that were dependent on factories, a lot of those people came to the United States. And so um, the culture that I you know, previously talked about, where you had you know, northern culture versus southern culture, all of a sudden you were having uh, more northerners come. And let's, uh, you know, the other thing is fewer, fewer immigrants overall were coming. You know, beginning in 1880, you, you had you know, 4 million people um, coming from Italy. And that number was much smaller by the post-war period. And so those, those are impacting the way, uh, <laughs> the way restaurants are being staffed, for instance, right? So um, you have these Northern Italians coming uh, to work in a, and they end up working in local businesses in Little Italy because the, the networks are there. But the, you know, things like they become a cook in a kitchen, they're learning about Italian-American cuisine, because they didn't cook any of that food in in northern Italy, and, and certainly not the adaptations that fifty or sixty or seventy years of being in America has created. And so, what's really fascinating today, you know, in twenty twenty, where you still have Italians that that come to places like, you know, often they start out in places like Little Italy um, or Little Italy is around the country. You know, they're totally unfamiliar with veal parmesan, and but then they become the cook in the kitchen to cook it. Or they become the server at the restaurant to serve it, and uh, and so that's, this is you know this is an interesting evolution where we're basically teaching immigrants from Italy about Italian American cuisine that they're not familiar with. Mm. No, definitely a change. Um, obviously, pinpointing an exact start or an exact end of anything is tricky, um, but you do at least posit the idea in the book that pasta primavera might be the end of the red sauce era why <laughs> so you know i i also try to i think the golden age of italian american cuisine really was the 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 pre-war years and the years right after world war ii where uh you both have innovation still happening but um you know uh more respect for Italian American cuisine, and by the the nineteen seventies, essentially, you're you get people moving away from that kind of cuisine and that style of cooking. Um, and there there are a bunch of factors that are contributing. There's a greater interest in um, the Mediterranean diet uh, as as a concept, right? And you know you might think, oh, Italian American food clearly would would fall within that that realm, but but for all the cultural reasons we just talked about, uh, Italian-American food typically was meat-heavy. It was cheese-heavy. It really wasn't as Mediterranean as, as it, it needed to be as part of the seven-country study to, um, to be you know, fish-heavy and, and, and olive-heavy and vegetarian-friendly, uh, right? Um, so that was one thing. You also had, like I said, the shift in uh, northern Italians are starting to come. So now these, these are people who are starting to open up restaurants that, that are reflective of more northern cuisine, things like risotto, uh, pesto. I mean, the, the introduction of pesto, um, we think of as this iconic Italian food, but it was very rare in the United States um, through the 1960s and through the 1970s to, to have pesto. Um, so all, all of these things are starting to happen. And then, and then you have this French restaurant that, the you know, on Long Island, the chef and the owner concoct 
pasta primavera, which is a very complicated pasta dish. Uh, the the rest the list of ingredients, the original recipe in the book I saw was two pages long of ingredients, right? And it's fresh vegetables. It's you know the big thing was um, fresh fresh peas that are you know difficult to to harvest and 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 get those fresh peas rather than like a, a bag of frozen peas or canned peas, right? And and so they create this dish, and it's an instant hit. But it's such a hit that within a few years, you can get pasta primavera, first of all, anywhere in New York City, certainly the tri-state area. And, and by the mid-80s, you're talking about the assumption that pasta primavera is this traditional Italian cuisine that has, is part of, of that culture when it was really created in, in the New York City area for a French restaurant uh, at a time when people were moving away from uh, Italian-American food uh, or traditional red sauce Italian-American food. Um, and mm. so to me, that was really like, well, if you're, if you're replacing menu items in your traditional Italian-American restaurant with this French-inspired, not red, you know, fresh vegetable-heavy dish, it's probably a sign that's the end of, of the red sauce uh, cuisine. Yeah, it is pretty much the exact opposite of everything you've told us about so far. So there we go. Um, I have a penultimate question that I ask a, a number of authors, but especially those that kind of I know have spent a bunch of time digging through interesting archives, because that's always such fun as a historian to get to do. So I was wondering if there's anything you came across in the research or writing of this book, whether or not it actually made it into the book itself. Um, that surprised you that you could maybe tell us about? Yeah. So, so the first, there, there are a couple of things that I think are kind of related here, which is one, um, how sometimes food, these foods were, were reinterpreted back by British and continental Europeans, right? Um, either because they, they first appear in the United States and then go back to Europe or um, how, there are divergent foods that have the same name that are not Italian, um, like lasagna, lasagna bolognese, um, you know, a British lasagna bolognese, um, which is clearly inspired by Italian immigrants making their way there, fundamentally different than the way you would experience that in the United States. And to see um, things like puttanesca, which, you know, uh, I believe, I think I actually was reading comments about uh, uh, puttanesca sauce in British uh, English language newspapers several years before they get to the United States. And to see that there is this sort of divergence um, on the continent and in in Britain from uh, the American experience of an interpretation of Italian food. And to think about how, uh, particularly under the European Union, how Italian food in, in Europe typically is better and closer related to Italian food in Italy without the sort of, um, with, with clearly interpretations inspired by the, the surrounding countryside that they're in, uh, but totally different and, and disconnected from um, Italian-American experience. And then it, the, the sort of follow-up to that or the other element of that is seeing um, how these elements have localized in some places. So with red sauce, I'm really talking about things, you know, you can get spaghetti and meatballs and could have gotten spaghetti and meatballs in any Italian American restaurant 
in the United States and, and any place around the world that's identifying as Italian-American. But then to come across where local communities didn't have um, certain foods or they created a food that never went national. And so, you know, uh, one of the, the great examples that I briefly mentioned in, uh, in Red Sauce, which has in the writing of Red Sauce has become more relevant because of television is the Italian beef. So I, I think I have two sentences to the Italian beef in Red Sauce, mostly saying, oh, this is a sandwich you can get in Chicago. Um, you know, since then in the United States, we've had the television show, The Bear, come out. And the bear uh, is a the first season of the show is all based around uh, this uh, uh, chef coming home to his Chicago Italian beef restaurant serving uh, Italian beef sandwiches and trying to turn that into a fancier upscale restaurant and the struggles with that. So now there's this national audience who's like, "What is the Italian beef?" and and so I think it was really fascinating to see that there are these super local foods that never made it into any kind of national cuisine or, or in the case of the, the Italian beef in Chicago, like they have a moment because they're on TV and, um, and you know, and, and then that plays out similarly. I'm a Trichiana sauce. And I think I, you know, I mentioned this in the book is there's a moment where there's a, a AP article or uh, the equivalent wire service article about a, an elephant in Rome who uh, dies from eating uh, spaghetti amatriciana. Now, before that article, there's very few references to amatriciana sauce in the United States or, or generally. After that, pretty pretty rapidly it becomes widely available. So it was one of those moments where a national news item is impacting the, the sort of zeitgeist of how people view uh, food. And I'm not saying people went to the to the restaurant and said, you know, I read about the elephant dying from... Yeah. Much- Give me the food that killed <laughs> <Yeah>. the elephant. <laughs> it, it does it does indicate how these things spread. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of these different sauces have that moment. Uh, mm. That's fun. Thank, thank you for sharing those with us. Um, especially the ones that, you know, only got a little mention in the book. We get a bit more now. Um, I only have one final question, uh, which is this book obviously is out. It's even out now in paperback if people want to get their hands on it. Is there anything you might be working on now or look to be working on in the future, whether or not it's on this topic, whether or not it's a book that you'd like to highlight? Yeah. So uh, like I said, there are all these really fascinating hyper-local foods. And, um, you know, the Chicago beef is just one of many Um and I'm I'm starting to do research into these very regional Italian American foods, um, and you know things like uh, you know having been from New Jersey, I was even you know surprised to learn this myself. Is New Jersey had developed um, that's what is called an Italian hot dog, and you know uh, the hot dog obviously is a very American type of food to begin with, and. Uh, you know, it has, it's only about 110, 120 years old itself, the creation of the, the actual hot dog. Um, and so I started reading about the, in Newark, New Jersey, which is just outside of New York city. Um, it had an old Italian American neighborhood. Uh, and in the 1930s, Newark developed 
four or five restaurants that sold what is called an Italian hot dog. And this is a, uh, a special Sicilian bun. So it's like a, you know, not a traditional hot dog bun. It's more of a circular um, bun. Uh, I think traditionally they put two hot dogs in it. They topped it with onions and peppers, like a sausage and pepper sandwich and fried potatoes. And so I, I was, I was looking into this. This is not something you can get anywhere outside of, you know, 50 miles outside of Newark, New Jersey. You're never even going to see this thing. Um, even within that, like I said, this is a great depression food. You know, hot dogs were cheap. You know, sausage peppers were cheap or uh, peppers were cheap and, and, and potatoes were cheap. Um, this is, you know, by the mid-1950s, there were two dozen places in New Jersey selling this Italian hot dog. And then I started to try to find it. And some of those places have closed. In the last couple of years, four or five places that were famous for them, um, they closed but because either the owner retired or had died. So it was really this generational thing that was starting to disappear. Um, I even went to a place on uh, the boardwalk, the Jersey Shore, uh, who promised on their menu they had, you know, the Italian hot dog and, and the woman behind the counter, oh, we don't have that today. We don't have the bread. And so there are the the elements to it that that are disappearing, right? Like if you can't get the, the special bread and even if you have the hot dog and the peppers and the and the and the potatoes, that you know, you sort of don't have that thing anymore. So that got me going down the rabbit hole of um, you know, learning more about the New Jersey Italian hot dog. Um, but also all of the other regional foods that like the Italian beef, um, uh, there's a Philadelphia, uh, pork sandwich, which has a similarly interesting story. Um, and so all over the country, anywhere you have an Italian enclave, more or less, there's some unique food that never makes it to national attention. That is not spaghetti and meatballs. It's the, you know, Italian hot dog of, of that area. And so I'm really fascinated by that. I'm trying to track down those histories and, and, and find those out. Like I said, before people die, before they retire. Yeah, um, no, exactly. So. Well, that sounds quite fun. Best of luck with those investigations. Yeah, um, thank you. And while you are traversing the country eating unlikely sandwiches, um, <laughs> listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled yeah. Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2022. Ian, thank you so much for being with us Yo, on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I loved uh, this conversation. It was great. Awesome.